for your amazing grace that you bestow upon us. And so, Lord, we offer you, Lord, our lives. We offer you, Lord, um, our songs of praise. And we ask, God, Lord, that you would be pleased with our worship to you, God. Uh, so we ask, God, Lord, that you would enter into this place and be with us, to be present with us as we hear from you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, or is it afternoon yet? Good afternoon, either one. Uh, how, how's everyone doing? Good. Cool, cool, cool. All right. I got a question for you guys to start off. Do we have any youngest children around here in, in, the, in the crowd? One, got a one or two, and only two? Wow. Okay. Well, I'm actually the youngest child of three sons, three boys. And usually when I tell people that I'm the youngest child, they, their response to me is, oh, that makes sense. I, I don't know whether to take that as a compliment. Like, is it because, you know, I'm fun-loving, I'm humorous or something? Or is it more of an insult because they think I'm, like, bratty or, like, spoiled or self-centered or I want to be the center of attention? I have a feeling it's probably the, the latter, that they think, you know, of th that way, and then that's why they, they, they're like, oh, it makes sense. My wife, Ashley, she's like, yeah, that's probably the reason. Most people, when they think of youngest children, they think spoiled brats, right? And that's coming from an oldest child, and so I think, as a youngest child, that oldest children are actually the more spoiled ones, but I don't know. We'll, we'll see about that. But anyway, I, I grew up as a youngest child of three sons, and, and that wasn't really that much fun, if you can imagine. Um, you know, just thinking that being the youngest of three boys, you know, my older brothers, they, they picked on me. But, you know, my older brothers, they're, they're closer in age. They're about two years apart. And, and at the time, you know, when we were growing up, they were always great friends. They would always hang out with each other. They would hang out together, and they would leave me kind of in the dust. And I'd be like, hey, hang out with me. But they wouldn't hang out with me. But they would go, and they would hang out. But there was a certain point around maybe middle school or so, they ended up becoming enemies of each other. And so they would fight all the time. They would get into arguments. They'd get into wrestling matches and, and all this stuff. And my parents, they always had a very hands-off approach to parenting. They just kind of let them do their thing. The only time that they've ever intervened with what, what they were doing is they got in such a big wrestling match that they both hit their heads against like a furniture and then they ended up getting big gashes on their, on their heads and they had to go into the ER and then, you know, get, you know, stitches on them. And so then they said to them, you guys have to stop fighting that much, but, you know, continue what you're doing, whatever, right? But anyways, as they got a little bit older, they started figuring out what's the point of fighting with each other? Why don't we direct our aggression to our younger brother, right? And so then instead they teamed up and they figured out what kind of ways could they torture their youngest brother, right? And so at the time, I was probably half their size, and, and there were many instances they would do all these things to me. One of them was, you know, they would straddle, you know, put me on the ground, right? They'd hold me down. They would take some tape, tape up my mouth so I couldn't breathe out of my mouth, and then they'd find the, the dirtiest, the smelliest shoe that they had, and they'd put, put it on top of my nose, and all I could breathe was the, the smelliness of their, of their shoe, and then they would take joy in that, and so I'd start crying, and I'd run to my mom, and my mom's just like, yeah, just, yeah, just don't, don't pay attention to them, just ignore them, like, I can't ignore them, or <laughs> another time, they, my mom, I mean, the, my brothers were like, they, they found me in a corner, and then they put me down, and then they had this new pair of duct tape, so they go and they duct tape my legs together, my arms together, and then they ended up duct taping me all the way in the ground in the corner of my dad's office, and so I couldn't even move. 
And so I'm in there in my dad's office, and then I see my mom walk in, and she has her, like the laundry basket, and I'm pretty sure we made eye contact. But she goes, and she proceeds and walks over to the laundry room. She goes, takes out the laundry and whatnot, and then she comes back, and she starts, you know, folding the laundry. And I'm just sitting there looking at her, trying to motion for her to get me out of it, and then she goes on, and then she, she goes and puts the clothes away. And then finally, after some time, she comes back, and she takes it all off, and I'm like, Mom, you got to help me here. What are you doing? And she's just like, again, just try to avoid them. Try to avoid your older brothers. And I'm like, I'm trying to avoid them. But my parents, they had a very hands-off parenting technique. They were thinking, you know, they'll just figure it out. The boys will figure it out, and they're probably going to fight with each other, and it's just a natural occurrence of being a part of a family. But at the same time, we know that we want to instill with them this idea that they are a family and that they can work through it. And so they had this very hands-off approach to say, hey, you guys, you know as sons, you guys are all brothers, and so you need to take care of each other. But, you know, they knew that there was going to be arguments that came about, that we would fight and we'd tease each other. But they really believed, and they had this hope that we would understand and know that we were a family, and so that we would stick together. Romans 14, Paul is, is talking about almost about a very similar situation, where as the family of believers... He understands that there's going to be disagreements. There's going to be divisions that come up, but we need to be unified with one another. We need to stick together as the family of God, that though we don't allow these divisions or these differences get the best of us, but that we'd be willing to take on this posture that works towards unity and acceptance. So if you have your Bibles with you, or if you have your your phones, you can pull out the Bible app. We're going to go ahead and read over Romans 14. And then if you don't have any of those things, you can look up onto the screen as it will be projected. So I'm just going to read it for us. Romans 14. Accept the ones whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us live, lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother and sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. 
Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink, drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. This is the word of God. Would you just bow your heads as we ask God to to bless this time? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be present with us, but Lord, that you would also open up our hearts, our minds, our ears, uh, so that we will be receptive to whatever it is that you are challenging us uh, to do. And so I ask God, Lord, that you would reveal those truths to us and that you would help us to to figure out what it means to really live into this this family of believers. Help us, God. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room be pleasing unto you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've got this long chapter in Romans um, in which Paul is again addressing the the church community at, at Rome. And he's addressing a certain issue that's come up that's divided uh, the church. And it's divided the church into these two big groups. He labels the two different groups as the weak and as the strong. Uh, Apparently, the two different groups are disputing over this matter of Christian living. There's an issue about eating certain foods or observing certain days as being holy. And what's happening is that both groups are trying to wrestle or or grapple with this this sense of applying the old purity and dietary laws uh, of of the past, uh, of being clean before God. In the Old Testament, Israel had all of these dietary, purity, clean laws um, that were drilled into the people to, to suggest to them this sense that they need to be cleansed so that they would be holy and pleasing before a holy and, and, and awesome and mighty God. And so before they can go into the presence of God, they needed to be cleansed, or they needed to, to purify themselves. And so there was a sense of, of, of that being in, 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 in their heads. But with Jesus Christ coming into this earth and fulfilling this promise, he allowed believers to have full access to God, and this was not supposed to be an issue anymore. But here, Paul explains how there's these two groups. The first one is the weak. The weak felt like they couldn't eat meat. That They were still believers who believed in Jesus Christ, but for them, they couldn't really, you know, I guess, understand what, what it meant for Jesus to give them freedom. And so they, they were still holding on to these old dietary purity laws, and so for them, they could not get the sense that they could eat meat. So they go ahead and they just decide to eat vegetables only. Whereas the strong, the strong were the ones that felt like, okay, we, could, we understand what it means to have freedom in Christ. And through freedom in Christ, God has made all things clean now. And so the food that, that we have before us, we can go ahead and eat it. It's not going to taint us. It's not going to hurt us. And so we can go ahead and eat this food. So they go ahead and they eat the meat that's provided to them. And so these two groups are, are, are kind of fighting with each other and with seeing what's permissible here at this point, right? What can they do? How are they able to work it out? 
There's another situation that actually comes up in the Bible that is, a, is another situation where Paul is writing to a church and they're also disagreeing about the foods that they're allowed to eat. It comes up in 1 Corinthians 8. Paul talks to these two groups, right, in the Corinth church. He talks to these two groups and they're having a situation about what kind of food are they allowed to eat. And the issue in this particular situation is that the, they, they're arguing about are they allowed to eat the food that comes from the marketplace, right? Because in the marketplace, a lot of the marketplace was associated with, with pagan worship. And so a lot of the food that, they were, that was there present in the marketplace often would get blessed towards pagan worship. And so they would go over and go to these pagan places. And so a lot of the people, the weak in that situation, in that church, felt like because it was tainted, because it was blessed for pagan worship, we can't go ahead and eat this food. Whereas the strong in faith in that group felt like it's fine, it's fine. It's, it's just in the marketplace, it's whatever. God's more powerful than any kind of blessing that a pagan worship would be. And so God is enabling us to go ahead and eat this food. It's not that big of a deal for them, right? Each of these situations, there's a division that's happening about certain kinds of food. And so they're going and they're, they're kind of, you know, both situations, that they're fighting with each other, but Paul is telling each situation, each group, hey, we need to work towards unity. We need to work together through this, right? And we need to, to bear with one another in, in spite of what's going on. What's interesting to note about this particular passage is that it also highlights uh, another difference that we often face together, right? There's a dif- the difference that takes place is that we realize that both of these groups are coming from different backgrounds. And it highlights something else that's, that's evident is that the division that's happening is mostly because of their different perspectives. And most often, the, the people will say it's actually because of the ethnic differences that are happening. In, in these two situations, the two prevailing groups that are here that are fighting with each other are actually two different ethnic groups. They're the Jewish Christians and they're the, the Greek and the Roman or the Gentile Christians. They come from two different backgrounds. And, and they're both fighting with each other because of their cultural history of what's going on. If you think about it, in the Corinth church, and scholars haven't totally agreed on this, but if you were to think about this situation, which of those ethnic groups was probably struggling and was considered the weak in that situation, in the Corinth church? It was most likely the Gentile Christians. Because they had this history of dealing with this pagan worship. And so for them, they always felt they associated the marketplace being a tainted place. And so they couldn't grapple with it and understand how this could be okay. And so they just stayed away from eating it. Whereas the Jewish Christians, they didn't have that history. So they were, they were totally fine eating this, this food that was coming from the marketplace. If we go back to the situation in Rome, if we ask again, who are the weak in this situation? Which of these ethnic groups is the weak? you'd probably say it's the Jewish Christians. Because the Jewish Christians were the ones that, were, that had this long history of the Old Testament law, of the purity and the cleanliness laws. And so for them, they couldn't grapple with how do we get past this and, and say, okay, now we can go ahead and eat meat. Right? Whereas the Greek or the, Gen- the Roman or the Gentile Christians, they didn't have that history. And so they were fine with eating this meat. They didn't have that history of the cultural history of what saying that this food was not permissible. And now they're thinking, okay, now it's fine. But as we read it, as we notice it, we find that actually the difference, that, that the disagreement that comes about mostly comes out of their cultural difference. Maybe because of their, their ethnic difference that's happening. And it highlights this fact that that difference actually often happens here in, in our world today. 
and in our churches even now. Right? Martin Luther King Jr. once said, the most segregated hour of Christian America is at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And Dr. King was talking about this idea that as the church, we've been pretty divided uh, in terms of ethnic, ethnicity, you know, racially, we're, we're, we're divided in that manner. You know, each ethnic group tended to go to their own separate churches. And, and that was natural in the history of America as it was an immigrant history, right? And so a lot of these ethnic groups would go in and form their own churches for the sake of language, right? Being able to speak the same language, but as generations pass, a lot of these churches end up becoming more assimilated to American culture. There's not as much of a priority to, to speak the same exact language. And yet there's still division that's happening with different churches. We see all the different churches that are out there. African American churches, white churches, Asian American churches, right? Chinese churches, Korean churches, right? They're all out there. And there's pros to having ethnic churches, ethnic specific churches, because there's an opportunity, there, there's a way in which these ethnic churches are best able to reach out to those of the same ethnicity. But what Dr. King was noting, though, is that, that we still are, as a church, as a whole church, we are pretty divided. We are segregated according to our different ethnicities or cultures. And at the time in which Dr. King made that statement, there was a lot of animosity that was happening between the African-American churches and the white churches at the time. And Dr. King was just making it pretty specific that there's division. There's division that's happening along racial and ethnic lines. And you see, what's happening in Rome at the time is that this, this community is quite diverse. There, there's ethnic diversity, there's cultural diversity, and it's a collection of people from all different backgrounds. And as they continue to try to live out what it means to be a church, they're running into these arguments or they're running into these disagreements because of their cultural backgrounds coming into play. And Paul is trying to encourage them, hey, how can you work through those things? And how can you work through them and come and be united together and be the church? At Lighthouse, I believe we value the coming together of people from different backgrounds and different cultures. We value and love the fact that we come together from maybe different upbringings, different cultures, different socioeconomic classes, different generations in which we grew up in. But with that all comes a different, unique perspective. Because we believe that when we come together with a diverse set of people, we come to have a fuller, a, a bigger understanding of God and who God is. And so we value the fact of coming together and trying to create unity with the diversity that we have present. After I finished college, I studied at Boston University, and so I was studying at Boston for four years, and then I ended up moving back to the New York, New Jersey area. And I ended up living with my oldest brother, Joe. And my oldest brother, Joe, he's a huge fan of the New York Yankees. He's a huge fan. He loves the New York Yankees. And it's because of his influence and his relationship with me that I ended up becoming a Yankee fan as well. I don't know if we have any Yankee fans here. Okay, I know... Mariner fans don't really like Yankee fans. Okay, but anyway. But, so, I, as I live with my brother, well, my, how I ended up joining, loving uh, New York Yankees or loving baseball was because my brother would take me to Yankee games, like 10 to 12 a summer, and we would go to a Yankee game, and we would experience the game together, and it became like a bonding thing for me and my oldest brother. But every single time that we went to the Yankee game, my, my brother Joe would make sure that he would buy a ticket or a seat that was different from the last. And so he'd always try to find a different seat in, in the ballpark, 
whether it be behind home plate, or it would be upper level on the right field line, or the bleachers, or, or lower level near the third baseline. Right? He would always try to, to have us experience another seat so that we would have a different perspective of the game. Right? So we would have a different perspective of the game, but we're essentially we're, 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 we're watching the same game, or we're watching a game, but we realize that there's an awesome, there's an awesome thing happens when we have people that come from all different backgrounds, whether it's in, in the, the stadium, you know, whether I'm sitting in the back and right behind home plate, someone else who might be sitting in the bleachers has a different perspective of the game, but we're still watching the same game. And when we all come together from all these different perspectives, we have this awesome panoramic view of who God is when we come together in that. So there's beauty when diversity can come together. And that's something that we value here at Lighthouse. And that's something that also Paul is encouraging the church in Rome to value as well. That there's unity with the diversity that's present. But how do we live that out? How can we become united with one another when these maybe divisions come up or disagreements that come up in our church body? Well, Paul gives three sets of actions to allow the body of believers to come together and be united as a family. And the first action that we can draw out from this passage is that Paul commands each of us to stop judging one another. Stop looking down at each other because of those disagreements. Look with me to verse 12. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. And then it goes on to say in verse 13, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. See, what's going on here in this passage is that there, there, was, there was that division. There was a disagreement that was happening. But, was, but as that was happening, there was actually a lot of judgment and contempt that was being passed down to each other. The ones that were considered weak were judging the strong. They were saying, uh, look, look at these guys. Look at them, how they're eating this unclean meat. Look at them, how they're eating all these things that are, that are tainted. You know, they're, they're, they're not right. So they're doing a wrong thing. They're, they're, they shouldn't be doing that. And then we have the strong who are looking down at the weak and saying, man, these guys just don't get it. How do they not understand that we have freedom in Christ so we can eat whatever we want? What's wrong with them? They're all just being legalistic. They're just being, they're just being dumb about this. Like, why are they doing that? So they were constantly looking down at each other. And in that moment, they were judging each other because of their different views. And Paul commands us to stop, to stop doing that, to stop being a place, a place of judgment over a brother or sister just because you disagreed with them or you had a different view of them. Stop judging them and making them feel less of a person because of your difference of views. Right? What we realize is that judgment never helps. Judgment never helps to build up the community. What it actually does, is it actually breaks the community apart. It becomes a stumbling block for another. Each group, either the weak or the strong, felt they were the ones in the right. They, they believed how they were acting was the correct way to live as a Christian. And Paul isn't there to express, okay, you're the guys, you guys are right, you guys are wrong. He's not there writing to them to say, you know, who's, who's the one in the right? 
But what he does say in that, he says that you actually don't have a right to judge. You don't have a right to judge the other person. You don't have the right to judge your brother or sister. The only one that has a right to judge is God. God alone. God's the only one that could judge. But he's saying to each, each of the people in the community, you've got to stop judging. You don't have the right to judge. You can't judge one another. When was the last time you judged another person? You looked at their life and you thought, man, they're just doing everything wrong. They're, man, they're a failure. Or they, man, they, they don't know what, what they're doing. Or maybe you, you found, you had a, you had a peer or someone that, that made a decision about something. And you looked at the way that they made that decision and you thought, oh man, they're, they're, they're idiotic. Why would they do that? Why would they make a decision like that? They're, they, they're going to fail in this. Or maybe, was there a situation, maybe you met somebody for the very first time, and from your first impression, you just disregarded that person. You thought, you know what, I'm not going to be friends with this person. Just because of our differences, I, 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 can't, I can't see myself. And so you made a judgment call on them and thinking, you're, you're better than them, and so you're not going to become friends with them. See, judgment happens pretty frequently within the body of believers. And it never allows a church to become this welcoming and safe place for others to enter into. I grew up in the church. Uh, my father was a pastor of a pretty large-sized Korean, Korean American church in, in New Jersey. And so, of course, that made me a, a pastor's kid, a PK. And one of the hardest parts of being a pastor's kid is that I always felt like everyone was watching me, that I had eyes always on me, that I had different church people kind of judging my every move, making sure that I lived up to a certain standard of what a pastor's kid is supposed to live like. And so I felt like I could never really rebel. I could never maybe act out of line because I felt like if I did that, that would look bad on me, but not only that, it would look bad on my father, who was the pastor, that then people would then say, put up rumors or say things like, oh, he's a bad parent and all that. And so I really felt this, this constant pressure that I was being watched. Luckily for me, I felt like I was, in some ways, you know, God shielded me from that, that judgment or feeling that I was judged constantly. But that wasn't the same thing for my middle brother, my middle brother Wesley. My middle brother Wesley was the more, the, probably the most rebellious out of all of us. And he was the guy that, that used to wear the baggy pants, right? He would have the three earrings, dye his hair long, and dye his hair yellow, and, and it'd be long, and, you know, he'd walk around. And he knew that all the parents in the church were judging him. He knew that the parents were telling their kids, hey, do not associate with him. He, he's, a, he's a punk kid. He's a rebellious kid. Do you, do not, whatever you do, don't ever become like him. Right? That he knew that those were the things that were being said about him. He felt like he was constantly judged all the time. And so a person in that situation, what would you normally do? What would you end up doing? You'd end up just leaving. And so he ended up leaving the church, and he hasn't come back yet. He left the church because he felt that people were just constantly judging him. And I look back at that experience, and I realize how divisive and how destructive judgment can be in the body of believers. When you judge someone, you rip them apart. You make them feel objectified. You make them feel marginalized. And so Paul is commanding the church, you need to stop judging you need to stop judging one another. Stop whatever impulse that you have to make a judgment call of another person and, and demean them. You have to stop doing that. 
You have to withhold any kind of impulse to do that, to become a stumbling block to a brother and sister in Christ. You have to stop judging one another. And that's the first step that, that Paul tells the church community. You have to stop judging each other. The second action that Paul calls us toward, in place of having judgment and, and looking at each other with contempt, he says then, you're, you're called now to accept one another. Verse 1 says, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Later on in the next chapter in Romans, chapter 15, in verse 7, Paul continues to say, Accept one another as Christ accepted you. And the word in which Paul uses is, is a Greek word. It's, it's proslambano, right? And that's the word that, that he uses for accept. And if we really dig deep down to the meaning of this word, so this, this word connotes this sense of um, kind of drawing someone in. Essentially, it means kind of draw, opening up your arms and giving someone a big, huge hug. That's, that's what it means. Another, another meaning of it is, is that to adjust your life, to make significant changes within your life so the other person would feel embraced. That, that's what Paul is saying when he says, accept one another, that you would go ahead and embrace the other person. It's not to just say, hey, I'm going to be okay with, with you know, being in relationship with you. I'm, we're just we're cool with each other. But there's a sense of accepting the person, making it feel welcomed, and making changes and adjustments within your life so the other person would feel welcomed in. It's actually quite uncomfortable to take this posture, to accept another person. It's not easy or a comfortable thing to do. Because often when you accept people who are different from you, right, who have a different view, who have a different culture from you, right, it, it can actually be pretty difficult. Or it could be kind of awkward even in of itself too. But Paul is saying we have to go ahead and accept one another. I think normally when we, we go into situations where maybe we have a disagreement with, with one another, it's easy to just go and say, hey, I'm, I'm done with you and I'm going to go on. You know, I grew up in the Korean-American church, and I've experienced my share of church splits. When a disagreement came about, they decided, hey, we're just not going to be a part of each other and, and go away. But Paul is saying, hey, no, we need to go ahead and accept one another. Don't let the agree disagreements hold, you know, divide you, but go ahead and accept each other. Work through those differences. And again, it's not easy. It's uncomfortable. You know, it's often very natural for us to, to make relationships or accept people who are similar to us, who might come from a, a similar background to us, who, has, who have the same ethnicity as us, because it's a lot easier, because you don't have to go ahead and explain your, your jokes, you don't have to explain, you know, how you grew up, you don't have to explain the foods that you like to eat, there, there's this common understanding that happens, and so it's, it's a lot easier to, to build relationships with people who are similar to you. But Paul is actually saying, no, we, you need to go ahead and accept people who are also different from you. And you have to put the hard work in and making the adjustments in your life as you go and you embrace and draw people in and you accept them. One of my favorite movies of all time, and, and it's, a, it's a great movie, is Remember the Titans. I have it on Blu-ray. I actually watch it from time to time. Um, I typically love any movie that Denzel Washington is, he's in, you know, he's my favorite actor. And so this, this was perfect combination, Denzel Washington, and it's a sports movie, and it's expiring, right? So it was all a, a great package. But it's a, it's a great uh, story 
uh, about how a friendship can develop despite the dividing walls that were happening at the time. The movie takes place in 1971 uh, where there was just loaded racial tension in the United States. One particular school in Alexandria, Virginia had become desegregated, allowing both African-American students to join in the school that was originally for only white, white students. In an effort to maybe help in the desegregation process, the, the school hires uh, an African-American coach, Denzel Washington's character. His name is Coach Herman Boone. And, and Coach Herman Boone, his job was to, to unite the, the different players that were part of this team. And so Coach Boone explains to each of the players, to the black players and to the white players, that they all have equal opportunity on the team. And most importantly, he wants them to come to this, this common ground where they could trust one another and play for the same team. Tensions were already high at the moment, but the team goes through this summer football camp to allow some kind of like relationship to form. And the most inspiring relationship from that was between Gary Bartier and Julius Campbell. Both guys were captains of their football team. Gary was the previous captain with the white, the, the white all-white team. And then Julius was the captain for the, the African-American players. And so they, they were both played on defense, but they were still in the beginning. They were kind of butting heads with one another. But as the movie continues to progress, they end up finding this, this mutual trust, this mutual for respect for one another. And you start seeing how they started off as enemies. They end up becoming great friends. You see the friendship develop over the time of the movie. And one funny scene that happens in it is that as they're building the relationship, Julius decides to go visit Gary and his neighborhood. And as he's walking in, into the all-white neighborhood, he sees a, a cop coming by. And he's thinking the cop's going to you know, yell at him or tell him that he's not allowed to be there. And surprisingly, the cop says, oh, you know, you had a great game. And then he's like, you know, what, what are you here for? What are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm going to go find, you know, see my friend, Gary. So then he goes, he end up, eventually ends up finding Gary's house. And as he walks in, he gets to meet Gary's mom. And it's kind of an interesting scene here where there's Gary's, Gary's mom. She's this shorter white woman. And she sees this, this big black guy and Julius walking into her doors. And she's, you can see that she's kind of feeling a little bit awkward. But she goes and she tries to meet him. And she reaches out her hand to give him a handshake. But Julius goes and grabs her hand and pulls her in and gives this huge hug, right? And it's just this funny picture, but it's kind of awkward, but, it, but it's really cute. But their friendship continues to develop, Gary and Julius. It comes to a point in the movie in which Gary gets into a terrible car accident, and he ends up becoming paralyzed. Julius hears about the news, and he rushes to the hospital room, and, he, and his heart is just breaking for his, his new friend. And as he walks into Jerry, Gary's hospital room, the nurse stops him and says, only kin's allowed in here. And then Gary yells out to the nurse, Alice, are you blind? Don't you see the family resemblance? That's my brother. See, the two men became brothers over the course of their relationship. When at the time there was so much racial hate and prejudice that was happening, these two guys were able to truly accept one another. And they really considered each other as family. What Paul is talking about in the chapter, chapter 14 of Romans is that we need to go to that length to accept a brother and sister, to allow them to become true brothers and sisters in our lives, to move past the awkwardness, move past the uneasiness of building that relationship, move past some of the disagreements that we might have, but that we would go ahead and accept the other person as a true brother and sister in Christ.
That was a challenge that Paul was telling the people of Rome to do. The last action that Paul calls us to do is that we're called to reflect the love of Christ to the world. Look with me quickly to verse 17 and 18. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Here what Paul is saying, he's kind of bringing it all back to to the priorities. He's saying this this whole situation, this isn't Christian life. Christian life isn't supposed to be about squabbling and arguing about matters like what foods you're allowed to eat. It's It's not about who's right and who's wrong. But it's more about how we as a community can live out together and to interact with each other despite our differences. And so Paul is extorting this community to be people that reflect the love of Christ by offering grace to each other. Verse 18 says that when we serve Christ in this manner, when we show grace to each other, it becomes pleasing to God, but also that when we live this way, others outside the community will come to approve. It says that they will will receive human approval. And this isn't to say that we're living for the world's approval. This isn't to say that we're, we're living to see whether the, the world will approve of what we do. That, that's not what, what Paul was saying. The, the, the real reason, the, what Paul is really trying to get at is the sense that if we can love one another, if we can accept one another, we show grace like, like God has shown us grace, and we do all of that despite our differences, despite our divisions, the world will take notice. The world will approve because they'll see how great this love is. And it will become a reflection of God's love for us and as we reflect it out to everyone else. So that the world will take notice and they will approve that this community, something is different with this church community. That they can love one another. They can show grace to each other. There was a softball game that inspired the country in 2008. And it was the college playoffs for the NCAA Women's Softball Championship. It was Western Oregon University against Central Washington University. So it was a rivalry of the Pacific Northwest. And it was a single elimination game as they were going through towards the championship. And the game was very competitive, most of the game being scoreless. Eventually, Central Washington took the lead, and they were winning 2-0. to zero, okay? It was the top of the ninth of the inning at the game, and it was pretty much the last inning now. And Western Oregon was now at the plate. They were batting. And it's at this moment, right fielder Sarah Tucholsky comes to the plate. This was her senior year, and this could very well be her last college game if they, if they lost. And so there were two runners on base. There was one on first and second. And Sarah comes to the plate, and it's, there's two outs in the, in the game. She comes to the plate, and she's, she's just hoping to get a solid hit, maybe just to hopefully to tie the game. Sarah was about five foot two not really known for her power hitting. She was more of a slapstick hitter. Like she would just kind of do singles. She didn't really hit home runs or anything like that. Actually, that particular year, she hadn't hit one home run the whole entire season, right? And so she steps to the plate. The first pitch gets thrown. It's a strike right down the middle. She, she backs off and she, she kind of does a routine. She gets back to the plate. The second pitch is thrown and it's actually a fastball right down the middle again. And Sarah, with all her might, she just swings into it. 
and she makes solid contact, and it bounces off the bat, and it goes straight into right field. It's a home run, right? The, her team has now taken the lead. It's going to be three to two. And so she's ecstatic. She's, she's, she's jumping for joy, and she's running, and she's so happy. She runs over. In her excitement, she ends up not touching first base. So she walks over it. And by rule, if you don't touch first base as you get to the home plate, and if you didn't touch first base, you're automatically out. Okay? And so she, as she's running, she gets around second base, and, and her coaches notice that she didn't touch first base, so they say, Sarah, turn back, turn back. And then as she's trying to turn back, she slips, and she turns her knee in this awkward, grotesque fashion. She tears her MCL and ACL. She's on the ground. She's writhing in pain. She's past second base now, but she needs to get back to first base, touch first base, and then go around the bases. And so she's crawling there. She's, she's in pain. She's trying to get back. And the coaches and the teammates are asking the, the umpire, hey, can we go, can we go and, and help her out? And the umpire tells them that there's this crazy rule in, in this sport that you can't, as a, if a teammate or a coach comes out and helps, him, helps the person you know, stand up and go out, it's an automatic out. And so her, her home run would be nullified, and then they would actually end up probably losing the game. Oh, they actually do lose the game. And so, one of, so they're thinking, well, what do we do? They see this girl. She's just trying to writhing in pain. She's trying to get to where she needs to get. When in comes Central Washington, this is the opponent, the first baseman, Mallory Holtman, who was a senior on her team as well, and she was actually the conference home run leader. She had the most home runs in the conference. And she goes over to the umpire, and she asks, is there anything in the rule book that disallows an opponent to help Sarah around the bases? And the umpire tells Mallory and says, actually, there's nothing in the rule book that says an opponent can't help another opponent. So Mallory goes, she gets a teammate, and they go and they pick up Sarah, and they walk her all the way back to first base. They lower her down, let her foot tap first base, and they go back all the way around to second, to third, and finally to home plate. That was the defining play that ends up, end up making Mallory and her team lose the game. Right? People were stunned at this, this act of grace the show of grace. And one of the reporters said this, it was an unbelievable moment, something I've never seen before. The only way to describe what had happened was that it was truly a moment of grace. See, the story is an instance in when this young woman was able to exhibit this tremendous amount of grace to another person on the opposing team. She didn't need to do that. It was, it was in her right to just, you know, let them just call it out, and then they would go on and win the game. But Mallory decided, I wanted to act out grace, offering grace to the other team. And she goes and she does that. That was just a glimpse of the grace that we receive through Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus Christ came into our world, came into our earth, out of his love for us, and he ultimately goes to the cross, dies on the cross for our sins to give us new life. That was the, the ultimate expression of grace. But when we show grace to one another, it becomes a symbol, it becomes a glimpse to those around us of what that ultimate act of grace is through Jesus Christ. 
And so what Paul is trying to encourage and challenge the people of Rome, and it's challenging us as well, is that when we can go ahead and accept one another, when we can show grace to each other, when we can work through our differences and not go ahead and judge one another, but we really show this deep sense of love to one another, that that ultimately would point others to God's grace and to God's love. And so Paul is challenging the church. Be the church. Don't let these divisions, disagreements, you know, divide you and break you down. But work together towards unity. Show love to one another. Accept one another. Show grace. That's what he's calling us to do. Each of us. That we would accept each other and we would love one another and be the church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the ultimate expression of your grace when you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross, to make us clean, to redeem our lives, to give us new and eternal life. We thank you for that ultimate, awesome expression of grace that you, you gave to us and you showed to us. But we ask, God, Lord, that you would also encourage us and you would strengthen us, God, Lord, so that we would be a people of grace as well. That we would show grace to one another. We would show grace to each other even despite our differences, even at the moments when we feel like we're right, that we're, we're doing the right thing and the other, the other person is doing the wrong thing, but that we would still offer grace, that we would still come to show love to that other person. And as we do that, Lord, that we would build up your church. We would live into the reality of what it means to be the church of Christ. Help us, Lord, Lord, that as we come to accept and love and, and, and serve one another, that we would be a light into the world, showing again what your love means for everyone else. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.